So Alicia, how's it going? It's going. Really? Yeah. Ready for another podcast recording? Sort of, because I'm still kind of reeling from the CTDM meeting that we had. Yes. It was all encompassing, all, like all my energy was basically taken up by that meeting. Mm-hmm. Totally worth it. Um, CTDM is critical thinking and dysphagia management. Um, so I, I don't know. I thought it was a great meeting and I excited to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. My uh, brain is at full capacity, that's for sure. And then right. on E by the end. So we've had a little bit of time to uh, rejuvenate from the conference. And of course, because we are who we are, we're ready to just talk about it more. Well, you know, the other thing that's making me want to talk about it are the evaluations from the meeting. Mm. And one thing that I definitely saw a lot of was the fact that people said when in the section of the evaluation where the question was, what would you like to see more of? So many clinicians wrote, we need to know more of what is normal. Yeah. Now, I kind of wish that we gave this evaluation before the meeting and after. Now, I know that sounds weird, but if we had asked the question, what kinds of things do you really feel like you need to know before the meeting? It would help me to know if they came to that conclusion based on content in the meeting mm-hmm. or they always have known, I need to know what normal is. You're such a researcher. I know, I can't help it. But here's why. I mean, the first section of the course was elucidating inconsistencies in dysphagia management, right? And one of the big conclusions was that it's possible that a lot of people don't know what normal is because really, how much time is dedicated to explaining just what a normal swallow is? Yeah. Not much. I mean, they basically give you the basics if you've had a formal course, if you take a CEU, you know what's so funny? In the eSTEM workshop, I specifically remember an astute attendee saying, um, well, I don't think I really got a lot of this stuff about normal. And I said, but to be fair, if this course was called normal swallowing, learn all about it, we would have zero, it would be me and you and they're like, how come nobody want to know about normal swallowing? Like that would but we be would a, love it. We would love it. And no, we would have the bomb meeting by ourselves. But in terms of ASHA CEUs, et cetera, not so hot, right? Yeah. But the question really came to mind, which is how do you get to the point where you realize, wow, actually, as it turns out, I didn't get a lot of what is normal in yeah. my training. Like where, why did, it, did they already know that coming in? because it's always been a deficit that they've noticed? Or did the meeting make them go, holy crap? Yeah. Well, I think part of the reason why you're, you're wondering this is because if you think about it, how long have you been studying normal swallowing in research for Ten, a while? Ever since, I, ever since before I got my PhD. Yeah. So it's, gonna, it's been since 2003 that I've been obsessed with what you, is normal. Exactly. You probably forgot what you were like before you knew normal so well. And mm. for me, it was a much wait, more wait. recent I know, I know what I was like. I had dreadlocks down to my bra strap. <laughs> <laughs> I may have had a chip on my shoulder. Um, but no, I mean, I hear what you're saying. Um, it's true. So I'm, I'm not the best example of anybody because I went straight out of my CFY in a non-swallowing environment. It was like the school system. Yeah. Jump, and I was like, oh my gosh, I definitely need to get a PhD because this is driving me bonkers. Yeah. Got a PhD and never looked back. So the question for you, Alicia, yeah. is 
when, since you follow the tr- traditional trajectory for clinicians, mm-hmm. when, if at all, did you realize that, oh crap, yeah. I think I don't know what normal is? I mean, it was multiple points, and I think one of the defining moments was, um, so I was a practicing clinician full-time and joined your lab, I guess, about a year and a half ago. And I'll never forget coming to your lab and reading a lot of your research in normal, healthy adults and being like, how boring. I don't want to study normal swallowing. Like, I'm a clinician. I love critically ill patients. I really want to study the most disordered patients that exist on this planet. Mm -hmm. So why would I go into a lab and study normal swallowing? That's boring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad you're telling me this now, not then. (laughs) (laughs) But um, it was a very eye-opening experience that having the opportunity to honestly just watch normal swallows. I mean, forget, you know, reading the literature and all those things, just the pure practice of watching a lot of normal swallows. It really opened up my eyes to some of the things that we see with, with individuals in fluoro that we just assume maybe is disordered because the patient's being referred to us when in all actuality, a lot of things that we see are, are just normal variations. So can I ask you this? Yeah. If you had known more about Mm. what normal swallowing actually looks like, Mm. do you think it might have changed your clinical decision-making before you joined the lab and were forced with this boring normal swallow crap? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that, I think if I would have had more of a solid understanding of what normal is, it absolutely would have changed my practice. And I I wonder sometimes, how many patients did I look at their swallow and say, oh, wow, look look how disordered that is, and maybe even treat that Mm -hmm. when it was just the way that they normally swallow. And we haven't even started talking about normal aging. Oh, my gosh, yeah, the variation in normal. I mean, like I always say, I I think you guys would probably think that I'm having, like, I... I'm having a love affair with Sonia Malfenter, but I swear <laughs> I love Sonia Malfenter's paper coming out of Katrina Steele's lab. It's about normal variation in swallowing, mm-hmm. and it just tells us across all the papers they could find in the literature on normal, there is a massive range where some swallowing events respond to bolus changes consistently, some do not. Some res- change with age, some do not. And it's that kind of information, in my opinion, that helps somebody to probe a patient in floral where they check across. We're already checking a range of boluses. We might change consistency. We might change volume. But we rarely go in, have them swallow one thing, and walk out, right? We generally ch- test more than one bolus. But once you know what change should look like, you can say, hmm, interesting how you did not change. So, for instance, if you go to the beach with your girlfriends, and everybody is supposed to turn two to three shades darker, but one gets like totally lighter. Wouldn't you be like, what the hell is wrong now, right? But if an alien comes in, they don't know what normal is, they just think the sun can make you lighter or darker because they don't know what normal is, right? Right. Oh my gosh, that was such a stratospheric that was, analogy. You've gone off the rails, I think. I'm making hash marks on number of analogies. It should be like... For every fifth analogy, Wait, you have hash, to do a shot or something. Or tally marks. Hash marks. What the hell are those? Is this a mainism? No, I thought hash they were mark. tally marks. No, 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 hash mark. 
Hashtag. Maybe it's a Canadianism. I um, thought those were tally marks or something. Mm. Anyway, the point is, the point is that that kind of information tells you what you should be expecting with change and what you should not be expecting with change. Exactly. Right? I agree with that. All right. So, one of the things that we've done recently, as you know, is we've actually done some studies on normals that other people might think is boring, but the way this came about is really interesting. And I'm going to tell you the way I thought it started because <laughs> okay. you're trying to claim some fame right here. I will never forget. I was sitting with Eleni, who is a. Um, in I was going to start with I'll never forget. So we'll <laughs> see. Because this is a defining moment for me in the lab that I knew I wanted to do research. So, okay, but okay. go ahead. So, and, and maybe it's just a precursor, but I was chatting with Eleni, and Eleni was saying that she she's more and more wondering what the heck she's doing because I would always ask her why she'd tell me I saw this problem and therefore I did this and at the time we were working next to each other clinically mm -hmm. um, in um, subacute inpatient rehab and then that led her one day to say to me you know what I often say patient is should not have a regular diet or is not safe or is NPO but they'll have ice chips and it just occurred to me I have no clue how ice chips are swallowed and I was like Eleni this is a study we can do yeah. And so... This is the precursor then. This was probably right after that was when I started working in the lab and I was just floored by the fact that you had your own fluoro suite and we could just have access to it whenever we wanted. Mind you, I'd been an acute, cleric, an acute care clinician for five years where it was every day fighting tooth and nail to get patients down the fluoro. So this was like a big thing for me. And we were having a conversation just talking about, oh, if I had access to fluoro all the time, what would I want to know and I said I just you know I recommend patients all the time NPO except ice chips but I don't know what ice chips really look like in flora we don't have iced you know ice chips and you looked at me and you were like get in the flora suite yeah. let's test it and I was like what so I remember sitting there in the flora suite and oh but wait we had to plan because it's not like we just had magically had frozen berries sitting around Right? Yeah. Oh, no, no. No, we did. We did because a lady and I were planning yes. this study. You're so right. So we were like, let's look at it. So I sat in the flora suite and chomped and on wait, ice. Wait, drum roll. Alicia has an abnormal ice <laughs> swallow. If we take, no, wait, if we take the clinical description of what is considered to be abnormal, which is a strict rule to some mm -hmm. that if the bolus head reaches the piriform before highway burst, or God forbid, while you're chewing, there is liquid draining down your your um, <laughs> draining down your pharynx into your piriform sinuses, then you have a big problem with premature spillage. You're not triggering a swallow yeah. on time. You're completely uncoordinated, decompensated, weak. Everything we can throw <laughs> at you, and you're NPO. Yep. So Alicia, show me your peg tube. Yeah, exactly. Yes, because I'm and I'm just sitting there chomping on ice and I can't see the flora and I remember all of you guys are looking at the flora like, when is she going to initiate the swallow? And I'm just like, the funny thing to me is that it's not even like you had this clear sensation that cold stuff was draining down your throat because you've obviously had slushies or popsicles yeah. or cold things before and you know how they feel and they clearly didn't feel abnormal. So if our eyeballs weren't massive, you wouldn't think anything of it. Of right? course, yeah. So, but I can read, I can see this report in the note, you know, if I were to, you know, help our listeners visualize what was happening, it was patient had premature spillage of five milliliters, ice consistency, right. filling the piriform sinuses, 
no aspiration, however, and swallow onset. Yes, however, patient at very high risk of aspiration NPO. recommends NPO. I guess not accept ice chips. Right, yeah, not <laughs> accept ice chips, right. NPO, regular straight yeah. up NPO. Yeah. yeah, and it was a real it was a real moment for me of um, what is normal. Right. Because because wait, I, no, wait, it had to happen I to you. I had an existential crisis at first though. <laughs> like, am I normal? I mean, I ask myself this often, In but this was, a, this was a real moment for me. <laughs> You're like, wait, a swallowologist who can't swallow normally and doesn't even know it. <laughs> This is like the speech pathologist who've been in my study about Mendelssohn's, and they can't do the Mendelssohn. (laughs) But they've been teaching it for 20 years. Hey, but the truth is, hey, come on, let's be fair. Why would anybody know that they can do it or can't do it? Right. How many speech pathologists end up in fluoro? And wouldn't that be an amazing study, right? Yeah. It's like when the psychologists end up on the couch, right? (laughs) And they realize, shit, like... I have mental problems, right? <laughs> and some people say that you're driven to the field that you have problems with. Like some people say SLPs are bad communicators yeah. and that's why they are obsessed with communication. Yes. Maybe we all can't swallow. <laughs> but um, oh, man. anyway, the reason I was asking, I wonder when the attendees in this meeting knew that they needed more normal is because during the meeting, if you recall, we opened the meeting with elucidating, inc- elucidating inconsistencies in dysphagia management. And we did that, Emily and I, strategically because we knew that we had some things that we wanted to share from the literature that had been in the literature for a long time. But we knew that it didn't jive with what clinicians' decisions were. And if we said, I know you think that the sky is actually red, but evidence shows the sky is blue, they would just revolt, Right. So I wanted to say, why don't we have them disagree in the same room, anonymously, mm-hmm. with clickers? Yeah. So part of this part of the meeting was really um, having people look at floros. They click the clicker to judge, uh, you know, one of five options. Like, let's look at this floro and let's decide if this is a base of tongue issue. Is it a hyolaryngeal issue? Is it a laryngovascular closure issue? Is it pharynx? Is it UES? Or is there no issue? And in the room, you'll see that 40% think this, 20% think that, 10% think that. What we discovered is that when we open the meeting by saying, look, guys, it's okay. Yeah. Even researchers don't agree, clinicians don't agree, and that's one, because swallowing is complicated. Mm-hmm. But the biggest issue, when I say to them, why do you think that we all have these differences in opinion? Why is it that we all had pretty good training, we spent the vast majority of our time looking at florals or dealing with people with dysphagia. Why is it that we don't agree? Oftentimes, someone raises their hand and says, I don't think that we really have been equally trained. And then when I say, do you guys realize that maybe all of these factors were probably normal, but you know, 40% of the room to 70% of the room have said that things that are smack dab in the range of normal as per frame-by-frame analysis that Mm -hmm. matches with the literature, we take normal ranges, and we say, where does this swallowing event fit? That this event is normal, that 60% of you guys said is abnormal, and you would treat it. Why? Then people go, I guess I don't know what normal is. And so it is in that moment of realization that the meeting takes off. It's like, we like are in the air, (laughs) wheels up, baby, (laughs) now we can talk. Because when we are at a point where I think people often come into this kind of a CEU course or any conversation about swallowing saying, I have questions, I have doubts, 
and that's okay. Yep. But I don't feel free enough to share them for mm-hmm. fear that it's gonna, I'm going to be out and I'm the only one. But when people hit the clickers, it's anonymous, and they realize that half the room mm-hmm. was with them and half the room was wrong, yep. then we can have a conversation. Yep. Yeah, and it's okay. I mean, and that's the whole point of the course. You know, to me, the best courses are the ones that really make you... I hate to say this, but do you just hate kind of it? Do you hate to say it? Though? No, I don't. Swallow your pride. <laughs> swallow your pride. No, just kind of let go of your preconceived notions and just open up your mind that maybe what you've learned or what you've been doing in the past isn't wrong, but it's not the best. Mm-hmm. And just you know, being able to open up your mind to learn and just look at swallowing maybe in a different way and take that back into your clinical practice. And I think that doing that elucidating inconsistencies was really the exercise of opening the mind. When people allow themselves to do that, I think that it just made the course so much more meaningful. Right. So there have been many moments in uh, recent clinical practice and, and working in the lab that I've had those moments of having to swallow my own pride and uh, let go of some of my preconceived notions and probably the one that was the most striking to me was when I learned about how we evaluate a delayed swallow mm-hmm. and this concept mm-hmm. of swallowing reaction time mm-hmm. which to be honest was a completely foreign term to me and I, I had no idea how to measure that. Previously in my clinical practice I had always measured a delay looking at the head of the bolus and where hyoid bur- or sorry, where the head of the bolus was in relation to hyoid burst. So if mm-hmm. I had a patient that the bolus was in the piriforms when the hyoid burst occurred and the swallow started, that patient had a delayed swallow. Mm-hmm. It was well beyond the ramus of the mandible, mm-hmm. which was the marker for if a swallow was delayed or not. And that's how I'd spent five years looking at these patients. Mm-hmm. And w- working in your lab, I learned about swallow reaction time, which is a way to measure... Uh, swallow initiation, but I know it's used a little bit more in the research realm and that we actually have normative data on this. Um, It was just so surprising to me, and you had referred me to an article published by Bonnie Martin-Harris that talked about how normal people swallow with the head of the bolus in very different locations. Mm -hmm. Including as deep as what? Including as deep as... The piriform sinuses. And these are often young people. Yep. And that's just normal. And it really made me think about, you know, taking that information. And, of course, some people initiate at the piriforms, and for them it's not normal. Mm-hmm. And the consequences that they penetrate or they aspirate. Sure. And it's really, you know, the importance of looking at what the consequences are of yes. that, but not yes. just focusing on, oh, my gosh, head of bolus in the piriforms, swallow is delayed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so interesting, you know, we had talked about our ICE study before, so when we looked at all these healthy people, we, we had about 40 um, healthies that we had swallowing various consistencies, ice and mixed consistencies and thin liquids and pudding, and specifically with the thin liquids, we saw that same, um, you know, the same percentage of people that was at 39% of normal young people, a lot of them were college students that came into our study, mm-hmm. initiate at the piriform sinuses, yep. initiate in the vollecula. Some of them, I think 5% initiated in 
the esophagus. And that's what and that's what the range of bolus is from very thin. So yep. we did ultra thin liquid based mm-hmm. on Katrina Steele studies and her recipe that she's published, all the way to pudding, a yep. heaping teaspoon of pudding. Yep. And um, why you know, we're teaching this dysphagia class and why ask the students, why does this matter? Mm-hmm. And of course they immediately say, Well, because you don't want to overdiagnose. Of course. So I guess the question is, for instance, in your ASH Foundation, um, in the ASH Foundation grant that we have to study this phenomenon more and how SLPs make decisions about swallowing, you find that there are a ton of false positives, meaning right. things that, act, we're not allowed to say that in this podcast, right? <laughs> false positives. Oh, yeah, that's right. We found that. It's <laughs> but okay. The, but we know what that is. The idea is that somebody is saying someone is positive for an impairment, but it's actually false. Exactly. It's not there. And actually that swallowing event is completely normal. So why are there so many false positives when in the whole idea is that, well, it's because people err on the side of caution, which is, if I don't know, I'm going to say it's abnormal just in case. Yeah. So they check every possible thing that could go wrong and just list them, ever, list them all. But the problem then really is, what happens when the report doesn't match the fluoro? So yeah. if you look at the report, it's the worst swallow ever, right? Yeah. Everything is is a, is a problem. And you look at the floral and you're like, that floral doesn't match the report. You are probably going to make better decisions when you actually see the dynamic floral than you see what's written about it, because we could never write about everything. Mm-hmm. But also the false positives are an issue. And where one person's, as um, in, I think it's Gary McCullough's paper, one person's flash penetration is another person's high aspiration. So you're then taking that person's interpretation of the fluoro and imposing it on the patient when we know that there's a lot of inconsistency across speech pathologists in terms of decision-making for patients. Yeah, absolutely. It was really striking to me. Um, You know, we showed even the patient that had just one impairment. It was a delayed swallow that was like, 27 27 seconds seconds (laughs) before they initiated the swallow. I mean, you can't get much more out of the range of normal than that. And it was something, I don't remember the number off the top of my head. 67% identified it. 67% identified it, but it was um, like 40% of the people clicked more than eight impairments in in that swallow in addition to that. And they weren't abnormal. And they were all completely normal. And and sorry, just to be clear, this particular survey that you that that mm-hmm. item had over two hundred and twelve SLPs right. who responded. This Absolutely. is not like five people who we just found out in the <laughs> yeah. streets. And of course we showed, you know, as the complexity of the swallows increase that false positives increase and accuracy decreases and being able to identify the correct impairment, which is what we guessed. I mean, we've all had those complicated swallows where you look at it and you're like, what <laughs> the hell is going mm-hmm. on? But the but the point here is we always end up getting back to advocating for floral. Like maybe I should I have stock in like radiation <laughs> exposure if, it, if there is such a thing, because you would think I do. Uh, as if I have a conflict of interest, but I do have a conflict of interest. You know, I, on one hand, um, I want to wrangle all of us as speech pathologists and say we have to do better. But on the other hand, I want to wrangle radiology and say, give us the freedom to do better. You yes. know, and it's it's a conflict. Yeah. But I guess the next question I have is, 
what kind of solutions can we offer, right? So we don't want to be, mm-hmm. you know, bludgeoning people and saying, hey, this is a problem, skedaddle and yeah. bye, right? I it's agree. what kind of, how can we get more speech pathologists to know what normal is? I mean, they work in a hospital. They work in a skilled nursing facility. They work someplace mm-hmm. where people generally are abnormal for one reason or another. Yeah. Um, but the interesting about swallowing is that it's not blood sugar, right? It's not yeah. just one measure. Yep. Swallowing includes a range of events, so we can't say... We can say normal or abnormal, but we'd have to then attribute, well, what are the components that were normal and abnormal? When people say someone has dysphagia, you're assuming that at least one thing is problematic. Yeah. You're not assuming all things are problematic, right? Mm-hmm. So what we're charged to do is say, this person has dysphagia as characterized by XYZ. These other components were um, within functional limits. Yeah. Just the same way we do for speech. We don't say this child has our tick problems and it's just like, well, I don't have to tell you if it was a T or the G. You know what I mean? It's just like they just got that artic issue. Yeah. And well, and we also have to think about we know the variation in normal, you know, to look at a patient and say, Yes, this might be within the range. It's a big range, but is this normal for this person? Right. Right. right, so and we have to be where, careful right. about not being black and white about it, mm-hmm. too, is really taking one more step back and making a decision, keeping in mind the variation. Embracing the gray. Embracing the gray. Embracing the gray. Just live in the gray. It's really a good place to be. It is. It makes it you fun. Don't have, it's very noncommittal, right? I know. It is noncommittal, <laughs> but it also makes it really fun and interesting. If dysphagia was black and white, I think I would get very bored. But I'm about to challenge you right quick. <sighs> Do it. Okay, so... Can, I know you don't like black and white, and you mm-hmm. get really bored, but let's decide what we can absolutely agree oh, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's decide what we can agree on that is truly a normal phenomenon. Yes. And then we'll move to gray, and then I think it's pretty easy for us to identify things that are completely abnormal. But let's try as an exercise, okay. as a way to offer a solution to say, what categories do things live in? So what in your mind is completely normal to see on floral? Flash penetration. I cannot stand when I see patients being treated for flash penetration that is probably the way that they swallow on Mm -hmm. every single dang consistency. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Normal people do that. And so I will say that I have seen in my career, uh, the vast majority of my studies are in healthy, normal adults across the age span. I have seen so much flash penetration. I'm, again, people walking in off the streets, totally normal. Like some college student who last night just killed it with the beer bong. Like they can swallow like nobody's business, right? Is that a thing? I learned that in Wisconsin. I just, the look on your face was like, what's a beer bong? No. You know what I'm talking about? I can't believe you just whipped out beer bong on me. Like, that Ian Esther with the dreads down to her bra strap is really who had a chip on her coming around. Coming out. Okay. All right. So essentially, I see so much flash penetration across the age span. <laughs> You're still laughing at the people. No, I'm laughing because you are like adamant that like n- nobody has seen more flash penetration than Anessa <laughs> Humber. Like, don't even try. No, like you're suggesting what's normal, and I'm confirming based on my life. I'm like, um, and my life says yes, and my life says no. Okay. But no, I completely agree with you. And the truth is, you know what's funny is if I on I took some speech um, pathologist swallow a random person. And they had flash penetration. I'd be like, so when would you like to schedule your peg? (laughs) They would bolt out of that room, right? 
So let's think about what we would want to be charged with and what we would not want to be charged with, okay? <laughs> so let's let's give a little innocent until proven guilty. Let's okay. be cowboys. Okay, so okay. I agree with you. Flash penetration, what else? Yeah. Um, Do you want to take a step further and say aspiration? <laughs> oh, no, wait, we're not gray yet. Let's not move to gray. No, we're not gray. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I did mine. You, you tell me one of yours. Okay. So the other thing that is completely normal is that sometimes people have residue. <laughs> so the funniest... No, What's so funny about You just that? said that. Like, they have residue. Like, you wanted me to be like, no. Well, you know what? I will never forget this swallow that I always show for this Easton talk I give. It's a healthy 42-year-old male swallow. <laughs> and it's 5 ml of thin liquid. And it's the pre-Easton swallow. He has no Easton. And he has residue in his volecula. I, now, I thought the controversial part was going to be when I showed what he looks like with the E-stem. People were like, that's not normal. It was just like, grab your pitchforks. It's like crazy. <laughs> and I, now, whenever I give that talk, I say, I want to assure you before I show the clip, this is a healthy 42-year-old male who does not have dysphagia. Mm -hmm. This is his normal 5ml swallow. Yes, he has a little bit of residue in his molecular. Don't shoot him. You know what I mean? Yeah. So residue happens. I mean, sometimes we double swallow because we didn't get it all down the first time, and we double swallow because that's what how you clear a bolus. The yeah. difference is, do we... And even, honestly, if I know somebody who has dysphagia and they have residue, I often wait to see what they do with it. I want to know, do they double swallow without me saying anything? Mm -hmm. In which case, I'll say, note, they had, you know, significant residue. However, without prompting... They cleared it spontaneously in a swallow that yes. followed in a timely way that did not lead to aspiration or penetration. So while that might that amount might have been abnormal, I'm giving them a pass by explaining the situation. Yeah. Well, I think that leads into another thing that's normal and something we've talked about a lot is that if a patient does penetrate or have flash penetration or have residue, not every patient clears it by coughing. Exactly. Some people, their mechanism to clear that is a double swallow. Exactly. Or a throat or clear. A throat clear. Mm -hmm. Or... Or... <coughs> Sorry. Yep. I don't know what that was, but... Or, you know, some compensatory strategy that just because they didn't cough doesn't mm -hmm. mean they don't have sensation. Or they suppress it because they don't want to do that in front of you. Exactly. Look, let's put it this way. If I basically am coming into a clinic to determine whether or not I have problems with vision, right? Mm -hmm. And driving might be taken away from me. Do you think I'm going to do everything I can to hide all signs and symptoms that I didn't see that damn red light and <laughs> ran through it, right? <laughs> Whatever. Like, what? <laughs> signs and symptoms of red light running. It's a thing, yes. right? If I know my freedoms can be taken away and I know that whenever I cough, historically, yeah. it always led to people saying, oh, they cough, therefore no yeah. thin liquids. Do you think I'm going to suppress a cough? Hell to the yeah, I'm going to suppress a cough. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes that silent aspiration gets... Um, too often times it becomes synonymous with cough or not cough. Exactly. And that's not always the case. To cough or not to cough, mm -hmm. that is the question. Yeah. Ooh, that should be another well, podcast and, topic. And we've seen that a lot in our patients that we've done the squirt swallows where we basically are making them aspirate. Mm -hmm. Not all of them cough to that's get right. rid of it. They do these compensatory strategies and that's that's part of this talk where it's like what is normal right. and until you see that in a college student mm -hmm. where you expect them to be hacking up a lung mm -hmm. um, 
you know, but they get some penetration in their larynge vestibule and they just do that double swallow and mm -hmm. boom, it's clear. Exactly. And that's, exactly. that's their mechanism. Exactly. So what, give me something else that is definitely normal. So, so far we have some residue. Mm -hmm. We have, what did you say? Uh, penetration. Pen flash penetration. penetration. Mm -hmm. What else? Um, what else is normal? I feel like we didn't sufficiently give enough things that are normal. You know why we can't? Why? Because a lot of the things that I know that are normal are based on milliseconds or range of motion. Ooh. <gasps> oh, I just no. thought of one. What? You know what I hate? I hate it when people oh, say reduce, reduce high laryngeal range of motion. The range of normal, oh according gosh. to Mo Fenter, my girl, I know, is like what is it like five millimeters to twenty-five millimeters? Well, can we, to can be we, exact, it's actually is it not five point eight millimeters oh to gosh. twenty-five millimeters? Nerd fest. Okay, so here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna get a ruler because I'm Canadian, <laughs> so I know what five millimeters is, but I need a reference. Okay, okay? so five millimeters is basically less than half of my nail bed. That doesn't mean anything standardized, but I'm a woman and I'm 5'2", five, five, okay? So whatever that means to you, take it to standardize my nail bed. But it's half of my nail bed. That's where some people are in terms of movement. Now show me 25. Now 25, <laughs> are you serious? 25 is as if I had a massive acrylic fake nail attached to my, to my thumb. <laughs> <laughs> That's how long it is, okay? It is super duper long. Yeah. So why is it such a massive range? So here's my issue. Somebody, some poor guy walks in. He was born and raised with a 5 ml. That, that, not 5 ml, 5 mil, millimeter. That's his thing. He's yeah. always been normal with a 5 millimeter hyoid range of motion. Then he has a stroke. He still has a 5 millimeter range of excursion of the hyoid bone. But... Someone sees that it's not moving so much, and now he's got a diet modification. Mm -hmm. That leads me down the road, the rabbit hole of saying, hyoid movement alone does not aspiration make. Right? Absolutely. Because hyoid is, hyoid is supposed to contribute to what? Laryngeal vestibule closure. Mm -hmm. So making the connection to hyoid didn't move, therefore aspiration, to me, in and of itself, is not a link, but we can't even go down that rabbit hole right now because we're talking about normal. Yes. <laughs> But let's put another that another podcast. I'm gonna write that write down. it down for another podcast. You know what? You know I can talk about Lorenzo vestibule closure all, all day. day. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't like it when sometimes you see in a report reduced hyoid elevation or laryngeal elevation, but there's no way to quantify it, mm -hmm. and the range of normal is so massively broad that it's sort of giving somebody a sentence of Mendelssohn's for the rest of their life. They're going to be Mendelssohning forever now. The only way for us to know exactly whether it's in the range of normal is to use software that allows us to track the highway yeah. bone that we do in research. Let's make a disclaimer that you can't take a ruler to <laughs> people's necks and floral. Exactly. Oh, wait, let's like make another rule in CTDM here in Gainesville. Somebody said, I was told that if the highway bone goes up into the mandible, then that was sufficient movement. And I'm so glad that she asked that question yeah. because I just wanted to say I'm a five foot, two inch woman. My hyoid is already obliterated by my mandible. It is so high in my neck. Yeah. So then what for me? Like it needs to go into my like upper incisors? Like, <laughs> like how much higher does it need to go, right? Well, you know what I was taught with hyoid movement, and this goes back to what is normal, is you take the jaw and you divide it by thirds. I've heard about that, yeah. And if the highway doesn't reach into the, 
you know, anterior one third, then it's out of the range of normal. But working in the lab, I've looked at so many damn hyoid bones and their movement. A lot of people don't even get anterior excursion. Right. It, all they need is that superior excursion. Some people excursion. have no anterior movement. Exactly. What you just gave me, you gave me pre-GPS directions. So you're going to see a big rock. <laughs> just count to five. I swear, when you count to five, you're going to see a big rock. Then you make a left. It's going to be an Arby's next to a BP gas station. You're going to make it right. It's like, are you serious? Like, that's <laughs> like that's essentially what you gave me by talking about separating the, <laughs> the mandible into thirds, right? It's We need swallowing GPS, basically, for people to be more specific. And there has to be a way to merge <laughs> normal ranges <laughs> into clinical practice where there's no way a clinician is going to have time to do these meticulous things that we do in our lab where we have these people running every fluoro into this through this machine where all these numbers spit out so to speak Um, and they sit in a cave and forever and like frame by frame everything there has to be a way to merge the two absolutely i agree so gray area Great area. I just think... Pharyngeal squeeze. Reduced hyolaryngeal excursion, man, that is the most overdiagnosed pathophysiology in speech pathology practice. I just made a bold statement. I know. I know. Shots fired. Yeah. Michels. Michels. It is. But I was Michels one of those... launched. But I was one of those clinicians. You know, I was, where <laughs> I... Oh, just so you guys know, Alicia feels like after she shoots and, like... Had does some shots fired that you guys are going to be okay with it if she just says I used to do it and you're not going to revolt against but her. But it's just like I I feel the need to oh reflect on my past experiences because I think this is how we become better clinicians is you know evolving and becoming better and being okay with it and just you know it's about the patients like Yes, I probably overdiagnosed a lot of hyolaryngeal excursions mm-hmm. in my in my time, and it wasn't until I understood normal that I could really reflect on that and and see the swallow a little bit differently. And then things that I absolutely do not expect to see are no swallow. Of course. No, that sounds so basic, but what about that video I posted? Holy, Holy cow. We, did it break the internet we with even the 15K? We don't have time. Like, we, don't. Ooh, we need but to have is... a podcast on how do you know they swallowed. Yeah. <laughs> but we honestly, should. I've never had a healthy person come in and be like, yeah, I, I can't move anything. <laughs> it's like, wait, what? Well, of course. Yeah. you know, we like to end these podcasts, these swallowing podcasts with what is something you want to keep down the hatch? Sort of like a myth buster or something like that. And you have something that you really want to share. It's a good segue from what we've been talking about. We've, I think, established pretty well in this podcast that there is a range of normal, (laughs) that there are certain things, two in particular, that really stand out to me or that People initiate the swallow when the head of the bolus is in various locations, whether it's the piriforms, whether it's the vallecula, and that can be normal. Um, Same with patients in their hyolaryngeal excursion. Some people have a lot. Some people have the five milliliters. I think the important thing is that we recognize this so we don't say things such as, patient based on reduced hyolaryngeal excursion, patient initiated with head of bolus in the piriforms, therefore patient is at, quote, high risk of aspiration due to these pathophysiologies. 
when they're actually probably normal. But let's take it a step further. If you're in fluoro, That's, yeah. why would you say high risk of when you can just see exactly. if they do? Exactly. Is it because you're doing fluoro so you can never see aspiration? Because that's what it sounds like. Exactly. Why not, we, why not test that? Does the patient not deserve to get their money's worth, which is to know what their limits are exactly. when they do fluoro? You're in fluoro. You never... I, I'll never say never, but <laughs> you don't need to say patients at high risk. You can actually just see it. Yeah. And it certainly shouldn't be based on a pathophysiology that is likely normal. Mm-hmm. Um, I always push my students to really push their patients in fluoro to be able to say, I saw this, I did not see this, therefore this is my recommendation. We don't have to say that. There's an easy solution. You have the patient right there. You have x-ray vision so can in I, front of you. So can I take it a step further? Uh, how, do, how do you feel about whether or not it is possible for a clinician to recommend NPO based solely on a clinical eval that where they have determined that a specific dysphagia impairment leads to NPO. To I'm talking clear, about we're ruling out the people that their respiratory status is too impaired, they're cognitively impaired, these patients that, I mean, of course we re- recommend NPO at the bedside for reasons that are right. not necessarily swallowing related. Right. I'm talking about somebody who the, someone has consulted you to see if they have a dysphagia impairment to see if they can eat, and you start out with a clinical evaluation and based solely on the clinical evaluation you can can you recommend yes or no NPO based on that no why do you say no well I think you absolutely need to see what's actually happening I mean signs and symptoms are called signs and symptoms for a reason mm-hmm. um, because it's it's not black and white at the bedside whereas in flora we can actually have objective information to be able to decide what is safe and what is unsafe, and until you get to that point, you don't know. Mm-hmm. So I guess ultimately, it's sort of like every clinician has to decide what his or her threshold is for what qualifies somebody for NPO, and I think that's where the difference is, right? Yeah. So first things first, some people, in my view, based on conversations, view NPO as a way to it's, it's a way to sort of um, relieve themselves of um, making a bad decision. Mm. And to them, the worst decision is giving someone a diet that men- and leads them to aspiration pneumonia. Right. They don't view, they view NPO as not as um, less problematic in terms of, or less um, restrictive, if you will, or less damaging or less right. risky yep. than modifying a diet that could end up you know, right. in aspiration. So if that's your worldview, then of course you're going to leap on the NPO bandwagon faster than somebody else. If NPO to you as a, another clinician is like the worst, I would never want to give someone that kind of life sentence. It's it's surgery, right? Mm-hmm. There can be infections. You're telling this person they can never eat again. And to them, that is a bigger deal right. than whether or not they might make a mistake with um, recommending the wrong diet. Right. So that's sort of the thing that I think people are weighing. Like, yeah. I don't want to be the person who said they can have thin liquids next to you know they're back with an aspiration pneumonia. Of course, pneumonia. yeah. And we're not trying to say, I think, oh, well, you shouldn't recommend MPO. You should just recommend a diet and see how it goes. I think the, you know, the whole thing is um, if you're going to say that somebody, based on your bedside evaluation, is unsafe, 
for eating and drinking, I want to be able to have objective information to be able to to say that. Right. Because... And you're saying you can't get that at the bedside. Of but, course. But do you but, see that's the fundamental difference then between you and some reports that you and or I have seen yeah. where the bedside alone was enough to get NPO. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, I've seen those patients where I've seen them at the bedside mm-hmm. and I've given them... Um, you know, done an oral mech exam and assess their their voice and given them PO trials, and I would bet my life savings, <laughs> which I'm a grad student, so let's <laughs> not too not much to of carry a risk. It away. <laughs> what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? I'm saying though. I'm, <laughs> um, I'm like, they're gonna aspirate. It. They're probably aspirating everything. Right. I mean, they are like coughing and hacking and wet vocal quality, and I bring them down to fluoro, and they are aspirating everything, but you know what? I've had patients that I bet you are aspirating everything and I bring them down to fluoro. Clean as a whistle. And even if they're not clean as a whistle, I can try strategies to help improve that. Mm -hmm. And And it would have been a better decision. Absolutely. So that's kind of an interesting thing because we are talking from the ivory tower where we have a lab with our own Mm C-arm. And... Our studies are based on fluoro. We don't have studies without fluoro. Yeah. So it's easy for us to say, so get you some fluoro. This goes back to you know podcast it number one. It goes back to everybody's doing it. So if you're frustrated listening to this podcast, go back and listen to the first one. <laughs> but so, no, I mean, that's part of the issue is yeah. that some people actually are forced to make those decisions. Blinded. And mm-hmm. is, is this, so like we say, don't blame the bolus. Is this a situation where we say don't blame the clinician, mm-hmm. right? If you're in a setting where fluoro is never going to happen or a country where yeah. fluoro is never going to happen, then you are making these decisions. But I don't think anyone makes these decisions completely lightly. Like they just like be doling out the NPOs like they're just like no. playing cards or anything. But I think we forget sometimes that both have risks, right? So. Yeah. Say you're on that. Say you you have that patient and you were on the fence. We've all been there. Oh, am I going to put them on a pretty restrictive diet? Am I going to make them NPO just based on the bedside? You know, I think sometimes it's easy to think like, oh, they should be NPO. That's safer. But we forget about the risks associated with the consequences of an yeah. NPO recommendation. Yeah. And yeah, I've had really interesting conversations with uh, Dan Weinstein mm-hmm. who. Um, was at Sibley Hospital. He recently mm-hmm. just moved to San Francisco, but talking about how he's seen so many patients with peg infections yeah. that he's seen as outpatients mm-hmm. and has evaluated their swallows for patients that have been peg dependent, but then he does a fluoro with them or does a fees and they're co- and they're fine. Yeah, and, and but they're in work, the hospital yeah. because their peg is infected, exactly, or because, because they're dehydrated, yeah. or because they have malnutrition, yeah. they have failure to thrive. I mean, the list goes on of the consequences of a of being in PO that, you know, we have to think outside of the box of aspiration pneumonia. Right. And I think maybe it's our job to impress upon other medical um, professionals or to our administrators mm-hmm. that you're asking me to diagnose a heart condition with zero, with just putting my head to their chest and exactly. saying, pacemaker, yes or no? Yep. Are we going to crack the chest open or aren't we? Like, let's think about what we're doing here. And I think it's that language and and understanding that big picture about what, you know, some of these consequences are that helps clinicians formulate the language to advocate for Mm -hmm. better instrumentation. You know, every 
I think, at least two, but almost every podcast we've done, I say it like we've done, we have 30 under our belt, but free in, <laughs> it always seems to end in advocacy. Ag- always. It always ends. I mean, all of these, pro- the reason we have this po- Swallowing podcast is because there are issues to talk about, right? Yeah. But these issues always seem to be, it's the same root. We always have the same conversation. It's the same the root that's producing the same fruit, right? Yeah. It's the problem, which is that these constraints really set up an environment where our decision-making is not optimal. Mm -hmm. And some things can change in terms of our individual abilities to understand and study swallowing better and really understand the mechanism. That's you. But there's also the fact that the system is set up so that we, even knowing the best physiology, if we never get to see it, what difference does it make? I would would take a guess that in every conversation that you and I have, mm-hmm. it's like a flow chart. Well, yeah. it's going to end in, in, in one of two conclusions. Either our graduate programs need to focus more on dysphagia <laughs> and give more anatomy and physiology, yeah. or clinicians need to advocate for better instrumentation in clinic. We could be talking about basketball, exactly. but somehow we will end with, yeah. well, they just had more dysphagia courses <laughs> exactly, in grad school. Exactly. <laughs> what, do you, what do you expect? She had no fluoro. You know? <laughs> it's the same thing. So on that note... I think it's fair to say that, you know, we, we've touched on some serious issues. Yes. And the, the big thing that, so we don't want to end the saying, so if you don't have floral, you know, <laughs> why are you here? That's what we're saying. What we're saying is what is normal is something we can solve, right? Yes. Me, my ability to understand normal, if you give me a, obviously, if you give me a yeah. floral and I don't know what it is, the floral is not the solution to me knowing, knowing yeah. normal, is it? How do we get clinicians access to be able to just watch more floros? Well, I mean, maybe we should consider posting some things on we the should. lab website. I think that'd be... We should post the normalist normals yes. and the least normalist normals. Yeah. Because it's sort of, and we can have those two categories where people mm-hmm. say, hey, dude, like, this is me. Like, Hello. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like a regular person on the street. It's like, hi, my name is Lucy, and I've been asked by the Swallowing Systems Corps to come in and do a swallow. Okay. And then they walk in, they swallow, and their swallow is just like residue and like pure form. This patient needs a chin tuck. Exactly. And then basically, the, you look at Lucy, and she's just this chipper little girl just, <laughs> just swallowing her little barium. And she's completely normal, Um, right? And then we bring in, you know, this guy who's just, like, looks like he might have some issues. And his swallow's, like, pristine, looking like a 19-year-old, right? So we're not just complainers. We have solutions. We do have solutions. And it's basically going to be Lucy and and the the decrepit guy (laughs) on campus. (laughs) Alrighty. (laughs) 